Welcome to Live Talk, a weekly radio talk style show exclusively produced by Pituitary World News. Well, welcome everyone. Uh, thank you for joining us today. I'm here with uh, my partner and co-founder and doctor, Dr. Lewis Blevins, and we are absolutely delighted today to welcome Dr. Sylvia Asa to our microphones. Dr. Asa is a clinician and scientist uh, and in endocrine, an endocrine pathologist. Uh, she studies endocrine tumors to improve diagnosis and identify targets for therapy. Uh, she was a professor uh, at the University of Toronto, and in uh, 2019, she joined Case Reserve University in clinical uh, in Cleveland, Ohio. Sorry. So, uh, welcome, Dr. Asa. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. I know you just flew from Australia, so we really appreciate you taking the time to join us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And Dr. Blevins, how are you? How was your clinic today? Oh, I think you are muted. Uh, things are th things were great. It's uh, probably about twelve patients. I think I saw fifty this week. Uh, always interesting, never boring. Love the job. Uh, lots of fascinating things going on in the world of pituitary endocrinology in our clinics. Uh, so it's good. A little tired, but uh, yeah. I'll survive. Yeah. Uh, so not like flying gonna... from Australia for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I know we're going to cover a lot of subjects today, and one of the, uh, in pathology and in endocrinology, and one of the most interesting subjects is this new nomenclature, and Dr. Asa has been one of the leading uh, physicians in the, um, in this, uh, in this effort. So I'm going to let you both talk shop. <laughs> All right. Well, the, the first thing I want to say, Sylvia, is welcome to the program. It's so great to see you again, and I was actually racking my brain for when the last time I saw you in person. Uh, I, I've become averse to going to endocrine society meetings for a couple of reasons. And one of those is that uh, I go to the meeting and then I run into people that I've either trained or trained with or know. And I spend most of the time talking and I'm exhausted by the end of the day, having not attended any meetings. <laughs> and uh, so I started taking a break and realized I'm so busy that I have to see patients. So I haven't been to an endocrine meeting in a while. Um, but the last time I remember seeing you in person, endocrine meeting was held in Toronto, uh, and oh, wow, we, we were <laughs> we were participating in a uh, conference with the Pituitary Network Association leadership and uh, discussing some very important matters at the time. And uh, that's the last time I remember seeing you and in, in communicating in person. Obviously, I've kept up with uh, your work, and uh, you know your your book on uh, endocrine pathology is on my. Uh, bookshelf at work and actually still refer to that, uh, even though it's probably 20 years, 30 years old now, it's such a seminal work. Um, and I want to say we appreciate the work that you do in the, the field of endocrine pathology. And um, it's our honor to have you participating because I think you're probably the most notable uh, person in the history that's done the work on endocrine pathology. So we're really glad to have you here today. 
Thank you, Lewis. It's, um, it's always great for me to catch up with people that I haven't seen in a while, like you, um, and to have the opportunity to talk with patients, and, and especially JD, thank you for inviting me. Um, there's been so much progress in this field in the last 20 years that it's really wonderful to have an opportunity to understand how it happens and what it means and how it can help patients. And I think that's really the most important thing that we do is to help our patients. One of the things that I have really appreciated when I look at the, you know, the trends and developments since I started with pituitary disease in 1988, so 35 years ago, um, is that, you know, we, we knew that people had a non-functioning tumor or a functioning tumor. And now we know so much about these non-functioning tumors, even the functional ones. And in my mind, I start to organize anyway, at least a, an approach to a better understanding of these tumors and which ones might be troublemakers later on. And I think that, uh, you know, there's the holy grail uh, in pituitary pathology still, I think, is to identify those that are uh, are potentially going to be more aggressive in the long run. We can look at clinical behavior and histological features. And I think now more than ever, we're closer to sort of getting this understanding of who we really need to convince to follow up closely and not. Um, so, and I think largely most of that work is, is the work that you and others have done, but uh, certainly most, most of it's work that you've accomplished. And at our institution, you know, Dr. Perry and, and uh, Balin and Tihan, the rest of them, they, uh, they certainly, we, we do all the full immunochemistry profiles and many of the things that you've taught us that we should be evaluating in, in these patients. Um, so we appreciate the work that you've done in that realm to sort of advance the knowledge and understanding on behalf of the patients, because I think you are impacting patient care. That's great to hear. It's, it's been about, as you said, almost 35 years. Well, maybe a little less since I started on this um, effort to identify uh, biomarkers that allow us to classify tumors much better. And as you said, even some of the tumors that are negative for hormones that we call clinically non-functioning, you know, that whole category contains a subset of tumors that will express some of the transcription factors like TPIT that will predict a more aggressive tumor than what we mm -hmm. usually see in that category. So. Um, that's really work that started in the 1990s when we started to identify transcription factors that direct cell lineage differentiation. And so, you know, over the last number of years, we've been able to finally, you know, consolidate this classification pathway. And um, the new WHO that is just coming out is finally incorporating not just the lineage that we can identify, but also recognizing that even in the differentiated lineage pathways, there are cells that are mature in their appearance and give rise to tumors that we usually can treat with conventional mm -hmm. therapies. And then there are some that are what we call immature cells that are not fully differentiated. They can sometimes be plurihormonal, but they can also be silent tumors. And these are the tumors that we really have to worry about when a patient has one of those because they behave in a much more aggressive mm -hmm. fashion. So having that kind of um, opportunity to study them and be able to recognize that type of differentiation, really, it's been a, a fascinating journey for me as well. And, and to be able to interact with patients and explain to them why their tumor is more aggressive or why a certain therapy may or may not work is really, you know, the crux of the matter. 
Yeah, it used to be that we would classify tumors as benign or malignant based on clinical features and uh, whether there was, you know, crossing a tissue plane, uh, local invasive invasion, distant spread, et cetera. And the criteria for diagnosis of a pituitary carcinoma, for example, some of these tumors cross tissue planes, but we call, we've called them benign tumors. But I think we still need to be suspicious of that clinical behavior. Um, obviously, lots of things have been evaluated. And I've often wondered, do you think that pituitary tumors sort of stick to the model that others have advanced, say, for prostate carcinoma, that a tumor is composed of differentiated cells and then some less differentiated cells or cells that de-differentiate or acquire new mutations? And then so we end up with this heterogeneous population of cells that came from an original cell. Uh, where a... some are differentiated. You think those are the ones that, and then they transform to malignancy? Um, you think that's a good explanation why we see pituitary carcinoma in some people? So actually, that's you're counting you're <clears throat> a topic that's very close to my heart. Um, in pituitary, we actually don't see that. They, we don't see a lot of intratumoral heterogeneity. Um, we do see some in one parameter, and that's probably the KI-67 labeling index, where there are some areas of a tumor that are not proliferating and they're negative for that marker of a proliferating cell. And then there'll be little hot spots, we call them, where there are more cells that are proliferating. But what's really interesting and the reason that we try to change the nomenclature of these tumors is you can't tell looking at a tumor whether there are areas that are going to be more aggressive. You can't tell whether there is a potential, you know, less differentiated cell that's going to metastasize. There's really no predictor available. And, you know, the behavior of these tumors is kind of more along the lines of what we see in other neuroendocrine tumors, where you really cannot tell one that's going to metastasize or one that won't. Um, you can't really tell which one will progress very quickly and which one won't. Even, you know, the, the proliferation rate with KI-67 is not very helpful. It's helpful when it's very high and then you know you're dealing with a bad actor. But even among the tumors that don't have a rapid proliferation rate, you still can see tumors that will go on to become much more aggressive. And in fact, you know, we, we know that some of the differentiation pathways are worse for example, the corticotroph tumors that are very large and infiltrative can be bad. Um, we know that crook cell tumors can be bad. We know that some of the silent tumors can. But when it comes to metastatic behavior and the term carcinoma, um, we're really dealing with cells and, and tissues that we can't predict until after the fact. So, you know, if you review the literature, and certainly in my experience and the experience of many other pathologists, we have all made the mistake, and it, it truly is a mistake, of calling something on the first or second surgery an adenoma, mm -hmm. and then down the road, the patient has a recurrence and then more aggressive behavior, and we resect it again, and we call it an adenoma again. And then at some point, the patient might develop metastases to bone or liver or brain. And then we have to go back and say, oh, we were wrong. This is actually a carcinoma. And nothing changed. When you look at the tissue that's metastatic, it looks exactly like the tissue that was in the primary mm -hmm. tumor. And that was really one of the more convincing pieces of evidence that we used to argue that the terminology should be changed. 
And so if you look at the, the pathology world, we've made a lot of um, decisions to use terminology in a very clear way that if people adhere to it, can actually be very helpful. And mm -hmm. so let me take you away from the pituitary for a moment to neuroendocrine tumors that arise in other tissues. And I'll use, for example, pancreatic islets, which are very much like the pituitary, or the neuroendocrine cells of the small or large bowel or the lung. In all of those areas, there's been a lot of confusion in terminology for many years. We use the word carcinoid, which people thought of as a benign tumor. And then when they metastasized, we called them carcinomas. And then there was a whole argument about whether, oh my goodness, excuse me, don't want that to make noise. Um, so um, what, what the WHO did was they actually called together a panel of people to talk about um, what is the right terminology to be using. And the agreement amongst all of us was that, excuse me, was that we would actually um, take the term neuroendocrine tumor and apply it to everything that is a well-differentiated tumor that has, generally speaking, an indolent behavior. And specifically, if you look at these scientifically, they have very specific mutations in genes that tend to be involved in epigenetic regulation. And I'll use the MEN1 gene as an example. That's a gene that's implicated in the development of a syndrome called multiple endocrine neoplasia, which affects patients who inherit a mutant gene, and they develop tumors of the pituitary, the pancreas, and the parathyroid glands. And we know that these tumors tend to be relatively indolent, and the function of that gene is epigenetic regulation. If you look at the pancreas as an example, there are also much more aggressive neoplasms composed of neuroendocrine uh, cells, and they have different mutations. They can have mutations of genes that are involved in adenocarcinomas, P53 and retinoblastoma, very aggressively um, dysregulated genes that cause bad cancers that can progress really rapidly and kill people. And those were also lumped into the neuroendocrine neoplasia <clears throat> family. But what the WHO has decided to do is to call everything that is indolent and based on a epigenetic type of dysregulation, those are called neuroendocrine tumors, whereas the more aggressive malignancies are called neuroendocrine carcinomas. So if we stand back and, and look at that model, and, and the model actually is really also nicely demonstrated in the lung where we have carcinoid tumors, which are well-differentiated neuroendocrine tumors, but we also have really bad tumors like small cell lung cancer, which is a highly <clears throat> neuroendocrine malignancy, right? In the pituitary, we're now facing a situation where we've recognized that these tumors that our patients have fall very nicely into the family of neuroendocrine tumors. They occur in patients who have MEN1 and other syndromes that are associated with other neuroendocrine tumors. They're made up of neuroendocrine cells. They're fairly indolent. They sometimes can invade quite aggressively. They rarely, but they occasionally do metastasize, but they're all in that well-differentiated category. Now, the challenge we have is that if we continue to use the terminology carcinoma, we're then facing 
the neuroendocrine world looking at us and saying, but these are not aggressive tumors like a small cell lung cancer or a very highly aggressive pancreatic cancer. So we kind of proposed in the new WHO that we wouldn't use that term anymore. We're going to use metastatic pituitary neuroendocrine tumor, mm -hmm. which makes the, the clarification and the categorization much more true to what we've done everywhere else in the body. So when we talk about these patients who have metastatic lesions, we don't have to tell them they have cancer. We can just tell them they have a metastatic neuroendocrine tumor. And we treat them with the same drugs that we use for other neuroendocrine tumors. Mm -hmm. But at least now they have access to those treatments. And that was really another of the motivating factors for us to do this terminology change was to say, you know, patients have in the appendix, for example, they can have a neuroendocrine tumor. It's an incidental finding when their appendix is removed for appendicitis. If it's a tiny tumor and it's treated, they never have to worry about it again. But occasionally, some of them really go badly. And in the pituitary, we probably have a higher percentage of tumors that behave a little bit more aggressively, and especially because of the location. The infiltration is so you know, critical because of the importance of the structures where the mm -hmm. pituitary sits, okay. that you know, we really have to recognize that this is not just a benign disease. It does not just, you know, we don't just take it out and they go home and they're fine. You know, that's something that for many years has disturbed me is that patients who have pituitary tumors suffer a lot. And it's not fair to them to say, you know, you have this little benign thing, don't worry about it. Because many of them do have serious sequelae, even the ones who have successful surgery still wow. have many of them are on drugs or, you know, they've got long lasting sequelae from this. So, you know, I think this is a nice kind of middle of the road way of saying you have a tumor, it's a little bit invasive, you know, we can treat it, we're probably going to be able to treat it very well, but you have all the support systems mm -hmm. that you need when you have an aggressive disease. And, you know, that I think people need that and appreciate it. It makes perfect sense to hear you explain it. At first, I was a little bit of a holdout and then Ari Perry and I talked about it and... I think he convinced me that this is the right way moving forward. He started suddenly putting these things in the chart and I was like, why is he putting this in the chart? You know, this isn't widely adopted yet, but he, you know, he could convince you to buy swampland, swampland in Florida. He has that effect on people. He's such a, he's yeah. such a great personality and all of that, but uh, love him to death. And, and a great singer, by the way. Yeah. And, and <laughs> yes. I'm glad we, glad we have him on our team. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I think it does make sense um, uh, going forward. And I really like the fact that we're starting to look at these tumors differently. Uh, and, uh, you know, when I was at Vanderbilt, uh, I was an endocrine oncologist and saw all the islet cell tumors and, and neuroendocrine tumors, wherever they were, and, you know, sort of would see these differences in behavior depending on cell types. And, and to be honest, I've long thought that any tumor that causes a tissue plane should be considered as malignant. You know? Absolutely. And, uh, yeah. you know, I, I, one of the, one of the goals I always hope to achieve in my career is that one of these days we'll call invasive pituitary tumors, you know, invasive lesions and uh, of undetermined significance or however you want to say it. But to me, if a tumor crosses dura, you know, it gets into cavernous sinus and circles carotid. That's a, that's be, if that were a thyroid tumor doing that or a lung tumor doing that up against a rib, that's a malignant lesion. No, no doubt about it. 
Yeah, exactly. I, I don't know whether it's good for patients to tell them that or bad for patients to tell them that, but I like the, you know, we could say invasive neuroendocrine tumor of the pituitary or metastatic neuroendocrine tumor of the pituitary. And I think it's, uh, I think it's useful to sort of uh, maybe classify people as this person's going to have a hard time. And, and really, it is a neuro on, neuroendocrine oncology practice when you're dealing with a tumor that you need to give radiotherapy to. Okay. If it progresses, maybe temozolomide. Exactly. If they have acromegaly, as Jorge does, they have to have medical therapy for their lesion as well. So it does really classify as more than just a benign adenoma. Forget, forget and uh, uh, come back for your scans every year. People need follow-up and additional interventions. I always thought the word benign was interesting because it's followed by tumor. So that's the word you hear. Yeah. So and then you go, well, there's never there's no such thing as a benign tumor. It's a tumor and it's gonna have you're gonna have issues because it's there. So I think that makes makes a lot of sense. Uh, I'm I'm glad you talked a little bit about the KI sixty seven. You know, as you said, when it's high we really worry, but we see people with seven centimeter non functioning tumors and the you know, the KI sixty seven labeling index is one percent. Yeah, you know, but obviously that tumor got big and had a growth spur, and and I think all these tumors grow in fits and starts. You know, could Jorge wouldn't mind me using him as an example when no, he presented don't. with his acromegaly in invasive disease, mm-hmm. and he couldn't be cured with surgery. We had a significant cyto reduction with the operation, and now he's on medical therapy for ten years. His medical therapy is is was formerly thought, and I disagree with some of those notions that this drug might cause. Uh, a rebound growth of the tumor, for example. But in 10 years, his residual tumor has not changed in size. Yet at some point, it grew enough to be invasive. We cyto-reduce. You'd think the remaining cells might start growing as a population biology stuff and some of the analogies with breast cancer. But it hasn't done that. So why hasn't it done that? Why Why is the, to me, the, the KI-67 sort of subject to sampling error as well? And Maybe you get a tumor when it's just in a quiescent phase, uh, and it's yeah. higher when it's growing. So, how do you, how do you look at those issues, and how do you explain those things? Why why has Jorge's tumor not progressed? We're happy that it's not. You know, <laughs> Very. But, uh, of course. <laughs> uh, but it's been ten years, and he's been on uh, pegvisimod, and there's been no growth whatsoever, no change so, whatsoever. Your question is is right on the you know that's where the money is and the the answer is that we don't really have all the answers yet. There's no question that KI sixty seven is not entirely reliable. I know there are people who think it's the be all and the end all of how you should classify neuroendocrine tumors, especially outside the pituitary. And I mean, just as in the pituitary, I've seen small bowel tumors with KI sixty seven of one percent, and you know there's a five centimeter mesenteric mass and liver metastases, right? This just doesn't make sense. So, I mean, you're right. There's probably a dynamic aspect to this. And as a pathologist, we can't look at that. We see something that's fixed at one point in time. And we look at, you know, one or two slides of a piece of tissue. We don't look at the whole tissue. Sometimes we don't get the whole tissue and what's left behind might be the bad part. So KI-67 is just one of many different parameters that we need to be thinking about 
in when we're considering how to manage a patient. And, you know, as you said, um, some patients will have very large tumors. I've seen patients who have seven centimeter tumors growing up in their head. They're gonadotroph tumors. They probably took 30 years to get that big and they didn't have symptoms because the tumor was very soft and it didn't interfere with their pituitary function. And somehow they were, you know, they didn't notice or didn't have visual field defects and no headaches. Those are lucky patients. Even when we debulk them, you know, you can kind of say, oh, it's probably going to be another 20 years till there's a recurrence and not really worry about it. In the case of a patient with acromegaly, obviously we have to treat for the hormone problem, right? And so it complicates right. things even more. I don't think KI-67 is anywhere near relevant when it comes to a patient with Cushing's or acromegaly. That's, that's mm -hmm. just, I mean, we look yeah. at it but it's pro we do it because we're supposed to. I'm not sure that it really says anything. Maybe if it's really high, like over 10%, then I would be very worried. But I've even seen microtumors that have been you know, completely resected by a surgeon with a nice rim of normal that have very high KI-67s. Mm -hmm. And they never recur because they got them all out, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, the, one of the things that we, I was just at this meeting in Australia and it was a pituitary group, the same group that made the proposal for the name change. And by the way, Ari was there. And one of the things we talked about was um, how do we measure and how do we classify the invasiveness, which is clearly a very important parameter for these patients, sure. because that's what's going to determine the success of surgery, which is the ideal and best treatment if it's possible to be successful. But once it's not, then we have to be looking at other things. And, and I think what you've touched on with pegvisimont versus somatostatin and all those things, these are really important questions that we have to start looking at the biology of these tumors. What's ironic is that um, we've made a lot of progress in classifying the cells and their hormone functionality. We can see things radiologically that are impressive that we never had 35 years ago when you and I started. Um, but what we don't yet understand is the pathophysiology and the genetic basis of some of most of mm -hmm. these tumors. There are some acromegalics where you know you've got a, a GNAS mutation, for example, you know the basis of this tumor's growth. And if you know that, you can target it. Those tumors usually respond very well to somatostatin because we can target what is the driver mm -hmm. of that right. tumor. But if the tumor doesn't have that mutation, we're kind of, you know, pulling pulling straws we don't really know and i think it's trial and error what works for a given patient might not work for somebody else there is some suggestion that maybe the tumor type can predict better response for example in acromegaly there are seven different kinds of tumors that can cause acromegaly and so you know we do know that many of them will respond to standard analogs and some of them don't so I don't know what tumor I had, but it might have been one that was one of the ones that just responds much better to pegvisimont because it does not have high cyclic AMP. You know, these mm -hmm. are the kinds of things we need to be looking at so that we can actually get to the heart of the matter and identify the cause. Yeah, I think in Jorge's situation, he had a, a SSTR2 receptor positive tumor but he only had a partial and, and adequate response to somatostatin analogs. Uh, so we had to transition him to a drug that was going to control his IGF-1 levels. Unfortunately, yeah. window tumor growth. Um, so you, you touched on invasion. I know in some other tumor models, there are 
there, there's a fairly advanced molecular understanding of what gives a cell metastatic, metastatic potential and what allows the cell to set up a set up a, a home, if you will, in a neighboring tissue or a, a some other tissue other than the site of origin. And also, I think some factors are understood about uh, what gives invasive potential to a cell. Have you looked at some of those similar uh, things in the realm of pituitary tumors and tried to correlate any any other findings other than what we use as the traditional reports with tumor behavior? Is there anything that, that so you there's, can share with yeah. us there that helps? Yeah. There's a large body of literature looking at a number of different things, including a, all different adhesion molecules, um, uh, enzymes that are involved in breaking down the collagen that surrounds a tumor and allows it to, you know, destroy it and penetrate through. Um, all of these things have been studied and, you know, there are all kinds of papers giving contradictory results about mm -hmm. the value of these in terms of predicting invasiveness and behavior. I don't think we have a solid answer for the pituitary. Probably the closest one that we have is in the field of growth hormones. So Jorge is going to want to listen to this, but um, there is one particular kind of somatotroph tumor, which is what we call the sparsely granulated somatotroph tumor, which has a very unique morphology. Any pathologist can see it on a regular slide, but it also has um, a very discohesive growth pattern. The cells don't stick together the way normal pituitary cells do. And we know that there is a significant disruption of one of the cadherins, which is one of those um, genes that uh, the protein that's encoded holds cells together and makes them stick to their neighbors. And so mm -hmm. theoretically, you would think that tumors that have this mutation or downregulation more often of a cadherin gene might be somewhat more invasive and aggressive. And that tends to be true, that that kind of tumor is usually larger when it presents, more invasive at the time, they often cannot be resected. Um, but whether or not there's gonna be any value in terms of therapy by attacking that target, I'm not sure that we have any evidence for that at this point. Now you mentioned actually something interesting. You mentioned, mentioned that his tumor was positive for SSTR2. And um, that's something that, again, there's a huge body of literature and, and there are some people who say that staining for SSTR2 should be done because it predicts response to somatostatin. And we all know that there are five receptors and just staining for one of them doesn't really predict a response. And uh, so I'm not totally surprised to hear what you've said, but there is some value for that in the case of patients who have more aggressive tumors. I just want to mention that there are now a few studies out there showing the use of peptide receptor radiotherapy for patients mm -hmm. with metastatic tumors. Most pituitary tumors do express SSTR2, even when they don't respond to somatostatin for therapeutic reasons. They still express the receptor, and just having that receptor provides us with another target that we can use to target radiation directly to the cells that are neoplastic and try to kill them that mm -hmm. way. I think that my experience is that most of our patients have expressed that receptor, but we see the usual 50% of patients yeah. will respond to treatment uh, or get a, get a satisfactory response that makes it worthy to continue treatment. Yes. Uh, and I so think I, that's actually a good thing to think about when you, when you talk to patients, because 
just having the receptor there doesn't mean that it's going to be able to be active. And, you know, I don't know of anyone who's routinely screening for all five somatostatin receptors, which might be another approach to look at what the patterns would be that predict a better response. Well, as you mentioned, cyclic AMP generation, all those sort of post-hormone receptor interaction defects that can happen within a cell, all that cellular machinery needs to work. And some of these tumors are a little bit de-differentiated and may not have some of those other exactly. other genes expressed to respond like a normal somatotroph cell. Right. I, I try to keep in mind that these are not normal cells, so they're going to have defects. And that, that probably explains why we see a receptor expressed, but uh, it's just like ACTH. You know, if ACT if POM C is not processed properly, you get an ACTH molecule that's non-functional. Exactly. Uh, you you may detect it in the serum. Some of these silent corticotrophs we see they have higher ACTH levels than the regular non-functioning tumors, but they don't have hypercortisolism or any clinical features of Cushing's. It's probably a non-functional molecule and. And I tell people that immunoassay uh, is detecting the molecule sufficiently, but it doesn't tell us about its function. It's like driving down the road, seeing a car on the side of the road. You registered as a car, but it doesn't tell you whether it would even start or run. It may have no gasoline or the battery's missing or exactly. engine's blown or whatever. So hormone levels yeah. in the bloodstream are the same. Tumors are the same just because it uh, stains for immunostains for ACTH does not mean that it's going to be a functional uh, lesion. I think you showed some of that. I remember one of your early papers about the uh, proportion of ACTH producing tumors of the pituitary based on immunochemistry. It was about 40% are silent lesions, if I remember correctly. Yeah, well, 44% it was quite that high, but a, signif- yeah, yeah. a significant percentage. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. it's kind of interesting. Uh, yeah. I, and that's going to depend on the pathology and the referral patterns and uh, who, who's having operations and all of that, obviously. Exactly. But uh, yeah. And we've done we've done a lot of work, and Dr. Augie's done a lot of work at our institution looking at silent corticotroph adenomas and POMC processing. So it's uh, nice to put all of this together uh, when we think about tumor biology. Yeah, that's great. Good work. Well, I think you know having having um, people who are interested in this is really the key because every time we find something, there's another question to ask, and we have to get to the next level to try to understand the mechanism by which Mm -hmm. whatever we've seen is actually working. And sometimes it leads to the right place. And sometimes we just go down the wrong path and Mm -hmm. have to start over again. Well, speaking of next level, you've accomplished so much and and have shed so much light on the pathology of endocrine tumors and, and especially pituitary disease. What is the next level? What's the next step for you? What do you hope to learn or hope to, to, uh, achieve in the, the next uh, part of your career what's your what's your focus going to be what's your line of thinking and and with that question um are you still doing general endocrine pathology as well or are you focused mostly on pituitary disease at the moment no i've um for my whole career i've always done general endocrine pathology even that is kind of unique um, most pathologists don't specialize in one area. They sign out a little bit of everything that comes to the, to the lab that they work in. But right from the beginning, I, I actually wanted to be an endocrinologist and then I saw the light. Um, but mm-hmm. I decided that pathology was a great way to study endocrine tumors. Um, but I've only ever done endocrine pathology. So my practice has really never changed throughout the whole time that I've been working you know, about probably 40% of what I do is thyroid because thyroid Mm -hmm. is the most common endocrine disorder 
and the most frequent specimen for a pathologist to examine. Um, but about 60% of the work I do is mostly other neuroendocrine tumors, neuroendocrine neoplasms, um, with a smattering of adrenal. Adrenal disease, fortunately, serious adrenal disease is pretty rare. Mm-hmm. Um, but I still see the whole spectrum of that. Um, but the neuroendocrine tumors is really where my favorite area has always been. Mm-hmm. And obviously, I started with pituitary. Um, my mentor was Kelman Kovacs, who was the person mm-hmm. who started this classification of, of pituitary tumors. And I've been able to really focus on that as my primary interest. I think for, you know, the stage I'm at now, it's always been difficult for me to be able to convince people that these neuroendocrine, you know, tumors in all the different sites are all related somehow. And, you know, at the beginning, I used to talk about the pituitary and pancreas being so similar. There are small um, neuroendocrine tissues that regulate such very important things. And they're both composed of multiple different cell types that make different hormones. The pituitary regulates growth and reproduction. The pancreas regulates our metabolism in terms of all of the, you know, um, intake and output, um, regulation of absorption and, and utilization of calories. I mean, these are all really critical things for humans to be alive. Mm-hmm. And they're very, very similar. And I guess if there's one more thing I would like to accomplish now that I've brought the pituitary back into that neuroendocrine family with the terminology, um, the IPPC actually wrote a paper at the last meeting um, kind of talking about how we've been lucky in the pituitary. We've understood all the different cell types and because people are so fascinated by this tiny gland and, you know, people like my mentor and, and the people you studied with, they were all focused on, acromegaly and Cushing's and all the florid disorders that are associated with pituitary tumors. And we've learned that a cell is not just a cell. There is, you know, well-differentiated and poorly, it's sparsely and densely granulated, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So I've actually been pushing my students now to focus more on the other neuroendocrine tumors, because I think the same model can apply. You know, the lung has three kinds of neuroendocrine cells and the gut has 20 and the rectum mm-hmm. has many different ones. And we've already known, our Korean colleagues have shown that rectal neuroendocrine tumors also behave differently depending on the cell type, right? So if you if we can just convince people to stop just counting KI-67 and start mm-hmm. thinking about hormone content, cell differentiation, and then of course, looking at pathogenetic pathways And so I guess the other thing that has been a focus of my career in the last few years is looking at genetic predisposition. Mm -hmm. So many, many neuroendocrine patients have something that predisposes them to developing a tumor. And if we as pathologists can help to identify features that will suggest this so that they're worked up from a genetic point of view, I think that's really helpful. Um, so, for example, you know, we have stains for SDH, which can predict a patient who might have a genetic predisposition to pituitary, pancreatic, and paragangliomas, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there are many other markers <clears throat> like that. I actually set up a stain for Menin to screen for MEN1 in patients who have these tumors. And I think this is really the next place to start looking because I think we're realizing that so much of endocrine pathology is genetically predisposed. Mm -hmm. And we can help people by identifying that, 
helping them to identify in their children and their relatives that there's a disease that may happen and hopefully we'll diagnose it sooner. And we'll get to the stage where, for example, if Jorge was one of these people carrying a gene, he would now know that his kids might be predisposed, screen for that, and catch it before it gets to the point where the surgery can't be successful because mm -hmm. the tumor's already invaded out, outside of the cell wall. I think that's really what we need to be doing um, in, you know, in medicine now, is helping people to prevent bad disease. We maybe can't prevent the disease, but we can prevent bad disease. <laughs> Fascinating. So believe it or not, we still see in America, and now that you're at Case Western, you might see it too. Uh, we see patients who come to see us at our center who had surgery at St. Elsewhere, if you remember that TV show. Oh, yeah. And the pathology report says pituitary adenoma, and they mm. don't do any immunostaining even in the year 2023. Um, what how do we solve that problem what can we do to get the word to the general pathologist or the neuropathologist at saying elsewhere who's evaluating these lesions and you know because the patient comes to us it's like okay we need the slides we need to get something done sometimes they don't release the slides believe it or not uh, what can we do to get everybody on the same page about the yeah. proper evaluation and what do you think is the 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 recommended minimum amount of immunochemistry that should be performed on a pituitary sample so great question that was actually the topic of our meeting this year at the pituitary pathology club um so one of one of the attendees actually is a pathologist who stood up and showed the report that he got from saying elsewhere and you know how are we going to address this so um one of the other advantages of having the nomenclature change is that we now have the ear of the organizations that accredit pathologists and labs. Wow. Okay. And so there's a, a thing called a synoptic report or a structured report, which mm -hmm. anybody who has a thyroid cancer or a pancreatic cancer or breast cancer, you know, there's, there's a report that comes from the accrediting body and that report must be completed by the pathologist. And there are certain required and non-required fields, right? Um, so now that we're neuroendocrine tumors, um, our goal now is to have structured reports required by the College of American Pathologists in the mm -hmm. United States, the Australasian Pathology Group, and that's where the meeting was, um, and also the ICCR, the International, uh, I think it's Consortium of Cancer Registries, I think that's what it stands for. They have issued, um, in partnership with each other, they have issued synoptic report sheets for thyroid cancer, for paragangliomas, um, for adrenal cancers, parathyroid cancers, all of these now are, have been addressed. And the one kid on the block who's been left out is pituitary. But now that we're neuroendocrine tumors, we actually can fall into that um, requirement. So I'm actually hoping um, my former fellow who's now in Toronto is now the head of the CAP endocrine working group. And so he has broached it with them and they've accepted the proposal to have a, a sheet developed. The uh, folks in Australia were doing the same there. And so at this meeting, we've agreed that we're all going to work together and come up with a internationally agreed upon proposal that everybody can use. That will help, but it may not solve the problem all the time. And so, you know, the answer that I used to give before we had this um, stick was the carrot approach that, you know, if you um, convince the clinicians, the endocrinologists and the neurosurgeons that they want the information, 
then the pathologists will do it. If the neuroendocrinologist, if the neurosurgeons and the endocrinologists don't ask for it, then the pathologists won't do it. And it becomes one of those vicious cycles where the blind are leading the blind, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, but then, you know, I'll finish with the most important people who can help us fix that, and that's patients. Yeah. I, I think, think they need to demand a certain standard of care. And yeah. that's that's what this is. It's a standard of care. And and somehow that gets set and it becomes a medical legal requirement, but also sort of a good practices of medicine requirement, exactly. really more than the medical legal it should be good practices. And exactly. maybe identify those patients, uh, those places where patients really should go for their surgery. You know, maybe, maybe a good question to ask your neurosurgeon would be, are you going to do full MAO chemistry panel on my tumor? And if it says we don't do that, maybe find another surgeon. Yeah. Uh, just so, to be sure to be able to get that information. So, so that is the type of information that we need to be taking to patients through okay. our channel or whatever other channel. So they ask the right questions. Exactly. Or they exactly. demand and the that, right. That's exactly why, you know, I think patient education is really, really powerful. And when patients, uh, you know, ask me for help, I'm always the first to say yes. I've always helped people. Um, I try and educate folks, and that's why, you know, I'm here talking with you, and I've done this for, for patients in many other areas where, you know, I think patients need to know to ask their, their – they get a report, and, you know, it, it says something. They don't usually understand it, but if we can help them understand that they need to have reports that include the all the various biomarkers, including the transcription factors and hormones, so that our proper diagnosis can be rendered. And if it's not there, they shouldn't be afraid to ask for a second opinion. Yeah. And, you know, I see a lot of this, and I know Ari does as well. We get second opinions from different places where they, they may not have access to the stains. And that's another issue that, again, you've touched on. Not every lab can run all of these stains because they're not that numerous in some places. The cases are few, and the antibodies will expire before they, you know, before they've run out. Um, so it becomes extremely expensive, and, and they may not set them up properly because they don't have the right tools. But, you know, this is a place where Ari and I and others who do this can help other pathologists as well. So I think really that's the way to move this entire discipline forward. I think we yeah, may have so, lost oh, Lewis. I think we? we lost Lewis. Yeah. He's, he should be reconnecting. Mm. I think the recording is still, we had a little hiccup the last time, the recording is still going, so, uh, um, yeah, that, that is so interesting, because I don't, I don't think we need to educate everybody on, you know, highly sophisticated molecular biology, these are just concepts that are important, that it can be simplified, so patients uh -huh. can understand them, and understand the, the importance of um, asking the right questions. I also want to make one comment. I had somebody ask me once, um, you know, to do a proper pituitary panel, you need about 15 stains. And that includes the transcription factors and the hormones, the KI-67, a keratin, you know, a few things that are really important. And somebody said to me, but that costs a lot of money. And, you know, especially I think patients should understand this. It does cost a little bit more to get a really good pathology report. 
But if you think about it, some of these stains are as little as $20 and some of them may be $100. But by the time you actually, if you, you know, if you have insurance, obviously it's going to be covered. Sure. Even if you don't have insurance, the cost of doing this is so much less than a week of taking a medication that you shouldn't be on. Exactly. <laughs> with, you know? with, with the cost of medication, it's just, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just penny wise pound foolish. No? Exactly. Uh, yeah. 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 So I am wondering um, what, uh, what what happened to Lewis. We've just for our audience, we lost this signal and um, he's either had a problem with his internet, which I hope it didn't. Oh, here there he is. He there we go. Here here he is. <laughs> we were just. Yeah. Sorry. Well, I, don't, could, I hope that it sort of. I, got, I, I didn't get I it. Sent you a text uh, um, it, so. we, the, the recording continued. So I think we. We were, we're chatting a little bit about the types of information that may make sense to communicate to patients so they know to ask the right questions. Now, we've published quite a bit of that, but it, but in, in terms of the pathology, it would be very, very helpful. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Anyway, so I'm glad you... Okay. So I'm glad that I'm glad it continued. I don't know. <laughs> I, I wrote today, said I need a new computer. Well, I'm so. glad you're back. Uh, hopefully, I'm glad you're back. If you recall, we had the same out, hiccup so. the, last, the last one, remember? Uh, yeah, yeah. So we did, yeah. Um, so hopefully, it, it, it did, hopefully, it saves the recording. I'm sure yes, it did because it, it uploads as we're we can going. Always right, so. edit a little bit if we have to. So yeah. nope, it'll be it'll be fantastic. By the way, by the time we, yeah. we do the on demand. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I think it's. Um, so I think this has been a wonderful discussion. I, I am uh, too. You know, I've I'm, learned I'm, a lot. I tell you what myself. I got out of it. I want to go learn more about molecular biology. I want to learn more about the <laughs> the the cell and how you know the sort of things that you need to know, the basic knowledge that you need, so you can understand a little better some of these concepts. And I, I, I often uh, say that I wish I would have had a mentor when I was in college. To, that uh, would have said, hey, you know, this is really interesting stuff. <laughs> when you're 18, 19, you have absolutely no idea what you want to do. And here I am, you know, retired with a tremendous interest in yeah. science and in learning more and hopefully transmitting that information too. So, it, you know, it's helpful. And a big, it's, it's helpful. something people can... can well, really... it's never too late, J.D. It's never no, too late. No, that's true. So, you know, the this important is thing is keep learning. And for the audience, I would say the same thing. Keep learning and, you know, encourage your kids to do the same. To keep do the same. Keep yeah. studying. The more we learn, the more powerful we become, right? Yeah, yeah. So with all that said, Syl, you, you've, you've, you're, you've published so many things over the career. Have you ever, maybe you would do this with, with the suggestion, have you ever thought about writing something for pituitary patients uh, so you have a pituitary tumor. Here's what you need to know from yeah. my, my, my perspective. It'll be really interesting to try to put something together for the lay press that people can really understand what it means to have a pituitary tumor, what they need to know about the pathology. That's a really and, good uh, suggestion. I've written a few like very that. short Just articles to... for some of the patient groups, but they're really very superficial. I never really thought about that. Mm -hmm. There was once a book, actually, that um, was published by Bob Knudsen and Linda Rio. You may know them. Yeah. Um, it, it was along that lines, and mm -hmm. it, it had really good, like, I couldn't write a whole book on what it's like to be a pituitary patient because, you know, there's so many other aspects yeah. to the medication, which I, you know, I, I don't really know 
administration and complications, that kind of things. Um, but there's also one mm -hmm. of the things that I did a little bit of research on, which I find fascinating, is the whole psychosocial impact of having a pituitary tumor. And I think having, you know, mm -hmm. psychologists who understand this is really important. Um, some of the work we did looked at a gene that's involved in regulating pituitary cell development. And it turns out it's also in the brain in the center that controls depression. Wow. <laughs> like, you know, these kinds of relationships uh, make yeah. you really wonder right, about yeah. how, you know, I'm sure many of your patients and your the JD's colleagues and and friends and relatives know that's a really big part of having a pituitary tumor is the, mm. you know, the emotional impact. And sure. so I think having, you know, a book that can include all that would really need a number of authors. And, and this one that was done, it was, it was kind of, you know, we, we did it kind of on the back of an envelope at a meeting one, one day we said, let's put this together. Um, and it, amazingly it was translated even into Chinese. Like people really like that concept. That's a long time ago, and I do think it's time for something mm -hmm. new because there's so much more now. Um, but it, and it's something that I'm always happy yeah. to participate in. But I, I really don't think I could write it myself. It, I could write my section, but mm -hmm. I can't. I, I would. Yeah. Well, if you want to put something together about so, what is a pituitary tumor? And what does pathology. it mean to have one? As far as just the from the pathologist first. We, we'd love to put that on Pituitary World mm. News and Absolutely. go around the world and probably be something that would be viewed multiple times for That's years to come. And I think it would be very useful. A lot of people have the, what I think is the misconception that a pituitary tumor is an actual brain tumor, <laughs> which of course I don't We've read about that. Um, but, um, you know, just, uh, but, but it gives, it gives an idea of how people don't really understand what we're dealing with, uh, and, uh, what the pituitary gland is, but it might be nice if you could write sure. a couple pages or something that, you know, here, here's what a pituitary tumor is. This is what that, you need to be that's able to That's very easy. That I could easily do. Yes. Well, I would, we would love to amplify yeah. that work and add to it if, uh, you know, whatever we can do to make it, uh, sure. resonate. Absolutely. Sure. Fantastic. So we, yeah, great. Well, on behalf of all patients and doctors and everybody involved, we appreciate your work and we certainly appreciate you being with Thank us today. You. To Thanks for inviting me. It's been a pleasure detail. chatting and uh, great to see you both again. I hope it won't be so long till I see you again, Louis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hopefully, hopefully this year I'm uh, probably going to be at the meeting in Chicago. Uh, would be my guess. So that might be my my first mm -hmm. meeting out after COVID, so to speak. So uh, I did attend the last one in San Francisco, but only for. Well, I'm going to invite you to join our pathology club because next the next meeting is going to be held in the United States. So. Yeah. Oh, cool! Yeah, I'd love to be part of that. You know, I've always had a long term interest in pathology, and I shared this with with. Uh, Ari and others at one of our radio shows. I'm not sure if you're aware of the fact that I sort of paid my way through college and medical school working oh. in a in a pathology group, and and I I've probably personally done about wow. 400 to 500 autopsies, and probably the only pituitary <laughs> endocrinologist who removed about 300 pituitary glands. Uh, and this is the era where we used to take them out and. I would put them in a little jar, right. and after I got enough, that's I'd send it to the That's how they used to make growth hormone for kids who were growth hormone. So that's a, 
that was that was my era and by the time i started medical school i had dissected basically an entire body except for the face you know because they you know i remember the pathologist once had a traumatic amputation of an arm of a guy that fell asleep on the railroad tracks and and the head of pathology department at this hospital said he called me up to the to the histology room and that's where i learned all all of all the histology i needed from them before i even started medical school but uh, he called me up and said, here, take this. We don't need to do anything to it. I want you to dissect this. Just, you know, run, you know, r- run it down there and dissect it within a few days. And so I'd been able to do that same with the leg wow. you know, before I even got to medical school. So pathology has always been close to my heart. I almost became a pathologist, but uh, I didn't at the time envision myself because I have a little bit of astigmatism and I didn't envision a career of looking through binocular microscope. Uh, because of that, and I always had trouble trying to well, find. Well, t- today you could have, today you could have been a pathologist because we now are moving into the era where we're doing it all on computer screens. <laughs> yeah, it's great to see the uh, the advances yeah. there. Yeah. So the resolution is amazing on these screens. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I love pathology. It's been near and dear to me since I was about 18 years of age uh, and just knew I wanted to go to medical school and was exposed to all this wealth of knowledge and information uh, about pathophysiology and all of that. Good. So, Good. Yeah, I'd well, love to participate. I'll send you the updates when we have uh, the meeting. Place. So. <laughs> good. Well, thank you right. both Sounds for the very opportunity good. to chat. Thank you so much. It's been it's been a fascinating discussion. Uh, you really appreciate it. All right. Uh, well, um, uh, goodbye, everyone. Thanks for listening. You have been listening to Live Talk, an exclusive production from Pituitary World News. Pituitary World News is a nonprofit organization supported by a variety of organizations, foundations and from people like you. We encourage you to participate by joining us to spread the word about pituitary disease. And if you'd like to donate, please go to pituitaryworldnews.org and click on the Donate button. Thank you, and thank you for listening.